0: to The Benji Show. My special guest today is Johnny Yu. He is an investor at Listen Ventures and the founder of The Consumer DAO. And I'm very excited to have him on the show today to talk about VC, crypto, Web3, and everything under the sun. How's that sound, Johnny? That sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on, Ben. Of course. So let's start off, Johnny. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, My background is in film. I'm actually still... um, in university for cinema studies. So I'm finishing my senior year at NYU right now, um, at NYU Tisch. Um, I started off really loving photography and I went from photography to videography, then went on to the producing side of things because I realized that my passion also for um, all things business and entrepreneurship led me more to the supporting and like the back end stuff. Um, and then went from the producing side to the theory side, because I really, really love sci-fi. And I think there's so much to unpack with sci-fi theory and what we know about ourselves through um, sci-fi works of art. And then went from sci-fi into VC, because I think there's just so much synergy between thinking about what kind of a feature we really want to build and um I think film and art helps visualize that for us, so that we can understand all of these things um, with more clarity for especially the average consumer. Um, so yeah, it landed my first gig at Listen about um, a little bit over a year ago at this point, and um, been working with Listen ever since. Um, when Web three popped off, I hopped over to um, sort of focus on the Web three side of things and founded Consumer doubt when I realized that there's a huge gap between. Um, brands that really want to adopt the advantages of Web3 and the world that's actually Web3 at the moment. So we're hoping to um, close that gap slowly with um, a group of really awesome founders and investors.
0: Incredible. There's a lot of unpa- unpacked there. <laughs> You're a senior in college, right? Yes, that's correct. That's amazing. Do you feel like it's an advantage or a disadvantage right now? Honestly, from a very practical perspective, I'd say...
1: It's an advantage because it means um, when I work five days a week, I get one day to just um, shut down from work, watch films and um, just have fun and daydream about things that don't necessarily have practical application um, or consequence. So I think I think for me, it's something that really keeps me going.
0: Yeah, I think you're a good case study for other college students out there to show them that you don't have to pigeonhole yourself as just a student you can branch out and pursue your passions and side hustles while also getting a degree. Yeah. I also think that, um, you know,
1: you're not really limited to whatever you thought you were going to be when you were 17 and applied to university or something. Um, I think There's so many, there's so much room, especially in how the world is going right now for interdisciplinary um, application in business or entrepreneurship or um, like any industry essentially. So, you know, if you're someone with an art background, I think VC is a wonderful place. Some of um, the favorite people I've worked with come from fashion backgrounds, art backgrounds, music backgrounds. So I really look forward to seeing this wave of interdisciplinary
0: investors join the space. Let's talk about your DAO, because that's really interesting to me and everybody else. Why did you start a DAO? What is your DAO all about?
1: Yeah, I think um, two really important questions there. The first one is, what can we accomplish with a DAO that we can't possibly accomplish in Web2, I guess, is also the other question. It's like, why a DAO, not just a group chat? And I think the answer is the ownership economy, to me, changes things completely when your consumers or your users are your owners. And it's different from the traditional model of a company where part of your consumers are your owners, but really the majority of stakeholders probably don't even use your product on a daily basis. And I think it gives room for so much more involvement and investment from your users. Because if you think about, you know, if you were the best customer at am am I allowed to like say names of brands? Uh, Yeah. Like if if you were like the best, you know, McDonald's customer, all you really get is, you know, maybe a lot more McDonald's discounts and, you know, you can essentially put a price on your investment into McDonald's as a brand. But if you were putting your heart and soul into building out a DAO and you're really, really passionate about the DAO's, um, you know, direction and their mission and their vision, then you're able to reap value that scales with however much work you put in. So I think, Consumer and building out the future of the intersection of you know consumer brands and Web3 and technology. I think that's a space that requires so much more work than just people bouncing ideas or sharing links. And I think having a DAO enables this um, ownership economy where people who put in more work get more out of the DAO. So I think that's why we opted for a DAO. And what the DAO um, is all about is essentially um, you know anything consumer. So we really like the idea that. Customers can become more involved in brands, product co-development. Code We're excited about the fact that um, culture and art can be weaved into a brand's narrative seamlessly because, you know, if you're financing your um, new beverage brand with an art piece that really embodies your story and your culture, then that's apparent upon, you know, before you even produce the drink, before you even have a website, you can have an NFT drop that embodies all of that. So I think there's a lot of interesting intersections and not enough, you um, market mapping out there that's happening. So founders, investors, marketers, everyone's on different pages. And what ends up happening is a lot of you know, full-time VCs end up becoming um, part-time NFT flippers and just investing personally. So I think there's a lot of room for you know, institutions to get involved, but before that there needs to be clarity on where the space is actually going.
0: Right, that makes a lot of sense to me. Can you break down more your DAO and how you're gonna be helping brands? Give me a use case of if I were to become a member, what would I be doing? And give me an example.
1: Yeah. So our first season right now is a little bit special because, um, we actually thought about this for a long time and I thought, you know, like, should we be, um, a decentralized consulting agency? Should we be a studio? Should we go out and raise a, you know, like pre-seed round to help incubate Web3 companies? And I think at the end of the day, we decided that, um, No one actually knows what the hell is happening, so we're we're dedicating the first season to really mapping out the market and finding out what's happening. So right now we're putting together work groups to really um, bring clarity on three things. One is a Web3 thesis, so it's more about like a long-term vision about what's happening in Web3 and what the most exciting parts about Web3 application is. Then we're putting together a brand NFT playbook that really tells you step by step how do you launch an NFT, how do you choose which you know, ecosystem to launch on? What are the environmental impacts? How can you explain this environmental impact to your consumers? I think that's what the playbook is really trying to accomplish. And that's, I guess, more of like a short-term version of um, implementing a Web3 protocol. And then the third one is just a huge list of resources for founders to get into Web3 without being overwhelmed. So I think there's a lot of good content out there, but it's all Somewhat unstructured and unconsolidated, and most of it is on Twitter. So, we want to put together a list of resources where, you know, similar to Y Combinator's um, um, startup school, where, you know, we have like two, 300 resources, but we select 15 for you to go through as like the core program. Um, And uh, the idea is if you go through these, core programs, then um, you should have a pretty good idea of what Web3 is and how to get into Web3. So that's what season one is dedicated to right now. But in the future, for example, once we decide that a consultancy, for example, is the best model, then we're going to start, um, you know, taking clients. Um, we're going to onboard founders if they're interested in launching a Web3 brand and really helping them understand how, you um, how what the values of um, a Web3 strategy is and how they can jump onto that value without um, screwing anything up because that's what a lot of brands are doing on the market at the moment. So um, I guess in summary, the first season is dedicated to figuring out what we want to do. Um, and then the second season onwards is dedicated to just running us like a decentralized company where everyone has a piece of um, what they're building and has stake in the company.
0: It's very noble. It's very... Uh, kind of you to be trying to help the community. I think there's a huge opportunity for NFT as a service, service providers or DAO as a service. And rather than it being just lawyers and accountants who are out there trying to serve the community, it could also be uh, these SaaS type of platforms where it's like, hey, Fortune 500 company, let us help you launch your DAO, your NFT. And that's the business model sounds similar to what you're doing, but you're doing it more as a decentralized for the people, for the public good, rather than trying to monetize it.
1: Yeah, we actually I I thought about that and I thought, you know, if NFT really is as big as we think. Um, it is, which I surely hope it is, um, then brands wouldn't want to outsource that. It's weird to outsource something this crucial. If this is the key to community building, then it'd be outsourcing a chief marketing officer to Uh, you know, like an, an agency that has 10 other clients who they're being the chief marketing officer for. So I think the idea is we really want to find the right way to do it. So that brands have full control over things like their smart contract or the future of their community. So they're not bound to us and they can do whatever they want with the community that they create through us. So, um, I think we're taking a more cautious approach to doing it because, um, there's definitely limitations to platforms at the moment and how they're servicing brands.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I guess, only a, uh, a portion of companies actually could have a NFT strategy. A lot of them just don't. Like my law firm, I just can't imagine us having an NFT strategy. Maybe. Yeah. How would you pitch it? I think, I think there's a lot
1: for the industry at the moment to unpack. I think, for example, if you're starting a new company and if you have an existing company, your approach to launching an NFT is completely different um, because of what you already have and what's at stake. Um, and I also think it's completely different for companies that mostly produce tech versus companies that produce products. And even within like the CPG industry, companies that rely on recurring revenue versus one-time purchases and novelty, they should have different NFT strategies. So I think right now, the, because we're so new in this space, there's one overarching strategy where people are like, you can use NFT as membership, or you can use NFT as, you know, like a way to crowdfund a project. And so far, I think those are the two largest applications I've seen, and there hasn't been too much um, prodding outside of those two spheres. But I do think that once, you know, new projects start popping up, um, people are going to start articulating new business models. And I think there's a lot more potential for brands that have existing IP that they can, you know, either license out or decentralize and take on a more user-driven approach to, um, you know, mapping out the future of the products.
0: Right. Tell me about Listen Ventures. I see on LinkedIn, it has 23 employees based in Chicago. You have invested in Calm, Factor, Kiwi, other up and coming brands. How did you get involved with the VC, especially as a college student? Can you not only share your story, but also some advice for other college students listening and how they could copy and paste what you did?
1: Yeah, Listen is awesome. Um, I think I was really lucky to end up at Listen because there were um, a series of other funds that I could have ended up at. Um, I went through a program called HBCUVC. Um, shout out to them. They're a fantastic organization. Um, before starting at Listen, they uh, crash course stuff on two weeks of um, essential VC um, knowledge, essentially. And uh, it's really special because they didn't just focus on the technicals, but they also taught you the soft skills of how to build a network and, um, you know, how to even how to send a calendar invite properly. I think that was something that's huge to me because, um, you know, like just formatting calendar invites properly so people know who they're hopping on call with when you have 30 invites in your calendar. Um, I think it was really special that they taught us all these soft skills. So um, I feel like I joined Listen Super Prepared. I chatted with our partner Kimmy for, you know, about half an hour. We really vibed out about um, the the booming of the sex industry um, and the sexual wellness industry. So, you know, joined listen right after Kimmy went on maternity leave and didn't see her until recently. Um, and then I just worked with the investment team closely um, and, you know, started off really enjoying Gen Z companies and um, Gen Z just, this whole industry of, you know, I mean, most people probably would agree that Gen Z isn't a vertical in and of itself, but I do think that there's a lot happening in the Gen Z space that it constitutes, um, you know, its own lens to look into companies that are built and led by Gen Zs. So that's what I spent a lot of my time on. Then um, more recently, I, I've been spending a lot more time on Web3. So um, in terms of in terms of breaking into VC and TIPS, I would say um, probably most important one for me is really research which firm you're joining and what you're applying for and understanding your job descriptions. Because VCs are typically much smaller shops than traditional, um, like, you know, investment banking or consulting programs where they have a really well-designed program for, um, for students to go through over a summer. I would say that your role in VC, no matter what your title is, varies from fund to fund. So it's really important for you to research, you know, are you going to be on pitch calls? If you are, is that something you want? Are you going to be doing a lot more deal execution and, you know, like memo writing? If you are, then is that something you like? I would say also research the industry and look for a firm that operates in the industry that you really like, because I think in retrospect, again, I was really lucky to end up at listen, but if I were at a B2B fund, um, that would be completely a completely different experience for me in VC. And I think you know potentially I might not even like VC as a career path because I find B2C so much more interesting. Um, so I would say just research, 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 and also be as selective with who your employers are as they are with um, who they're taking as their employees. Um, it goes both ways. And I think there's so many shops out there that students can afford to be selective.
0: That's a really good point on the differences in career trajectories. Between B2B and B2C, it really takes you down a different path. I want to ask you about the advice that you got about sending calendar invites. Can you Mm -hmm. educate me on what you learned? Yeah, I mean,
1: you know, sometimes it's really hard to remember, like, who a person is. Like, you know, if you send an invite to Johnny, there might be... um, you know, 10 other Johnnies out there and you're going to look at your calendar and be like, what's going on? So, um, you know, the traditional format of putting a person's name, then brackets what firm they're at, slash your name and brackets what company you're at. I feel like some sort of like a system that helps designate who you're talking to and giving a little bit of context i think that's really helpful and then in the event description i think it's also really important to put in the zoom link again because i know some calendars don't show uh, like don't show the zoom link as the event location it just doesn't pop up for some calendars so dropping the zoom link again dropping a backup number in case um someone wants to call or their internet isn't working and then just you know a little bit of context about um, if you want to find out more about Listen, check out listen.co, for example. Um, I think these are, these are great ways to just save other people, you know, a couple of seconds um, in their life. And it only takes you a couple of seconds to do, um, especially if you have like a copy paste template.
0: Yeah, that was really helpful. I'm really happy you shared that. I want to take it back to the Web3 VC hat that you're wearing. What companies mm-hmm. do you think are interesting right now? And for people out there in the market who may be listening, let's say they have $5,000. Actually, let's say they have $500,000 that they want to invest in Web3 mm-hmm. and they don't want to stake it and they actually want to invest in a company and buy stock mm-hmm. or token. Mm-hmm. Where? How would you help them think? Huh,
1: that's a great question. Um... I think it's that, that's a really interesting question, because even for me, um, you can evaluate a Web3 company in so many different ways. Um, there are projects out there that are definitely the leaders in the industry, but I would say those aren't necessarily good investments for everyone. Um, like even for Listen, for example, I think Listen, you know, we're, we're on our search for our first Web3 plus consumer company. But even then, I think there's a lot for us to figure out before diving into the space and finding the right company to make a bet on. So that's a really roundabout way of saying know very clearly what your interests are, because there's so many companies out there that you can't possibly buy every single good deal unless you, know, you are a crypto whale. So assuming you have five thousand dollars, you, have, you, you want to make one bet in just one company that you'll hold forever. I would say um, actually an art collecting framework would be really interesting. Um, I think there's a f- book by um, Michael Findlay, I think, that talks about the value of art. And he says that the value of art is always a co- some combination of three elements. One is the intrinsic value and your love for art and your passion for art. The second is the social value you get from art. So potentially validation or, um, you know, whatever benefits you get socially. And the third is the financial value of investing in art because no investor would buy an art thinking, you know, it will go to zero one day. Um, So based on those three aspects, I would say they're like loops, right? So like, At the core of what you invest in has to be the belief that you really, really like the artwork. So if this is a project attached to an NFT artwork, I would say, think about the vision. Is this something that you really believe in? Is it going to take the Ford Apes vibe where, you know, everyone's a DJ and aping into new projects, hoping to hype things up? Or is it going to take the doodles approach where the art is so, like wholesome and, you know, they're really going after the art and culture collaboration um, aspect. So I think the art itself tells you a lot about the community that it's trying to build around the artwork. The -hmm. second layer would be um, social and, you know, uh, just social validation or social value. And I think, you know, if you're interested in consumer plus Web3, why would you be buying into a DeFi project, for example? Um, really think about what value this brings to you, because I think there's, at some point, people are going to realize that there's a limit to how many projects you can support. Um, I have about 20-something Discord servers right now, um, and I'm just cleaning it out recently because there's no way I'm clicking through everything and following through every single conversation. I think two or three would be my maximum. Um, So, you know, your attention is worth money. That's what the, that's what the entire attention economy is about in Web2 with like Netflix ads, TikTok, Facebook, whatnot. Um, so I, I think you should really consider how you're investing your attention as well. So that's how I would think about the social aspect. It's like, are you really benefiting from this community? And then the third would be financial. So that's your, that's your, um, quote unquote, like fundamentals of NFT investing that most people will teach you on Twitter today. It's like, you know, like, does this have a good team? Are they dedicated to building out a good roadmap? Are they doing collaborations or future drops that um, help increase the value of whatever you're holding? So um, I would say that's the model I would go down to think about, you know, is this the right project for you?
0: It's really interesting to think about how our attention is worth money. And I think like my time versus Richard Branson's time, we're both scrolling on LinkedIn is the ad's. Are they are they more expensive when they go on his feed rather than mine? Like, how do these social media companies break down the value of their of their users in regards to their net worth and their buying power when it comes to ad spend? It's yeah, the level.
1: I actually just finished a course on. Um, that that uh in cinema studies that focuses a lot on attention economy and we talked about even things like asmr where content creators on the internet provide you with free attention and you know one of the core selling points of asmr is this one-to-one attention that you get from the creator and you know but they're producing these things for free on the internet so we, we talked a lot about care labor and um just investing time into things and i think the conclusion i got from the course is even if you are enjoying something a lot if you're giving it your attention and your time, it's still labor and you should be compensated in some way. And I think that's what web two essentially has failed us on. And what I personally hope to improve with web three, it's that you can be as passionate as you want about consumer DAO, but if you're building in consumer DAO and you're helping out with consumer DAO, I'd like that, you know, you're rewarded for it. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's something that we're trying to figure out a system around because obviously, um, I did a free um, whitelist token giveaway to investors in the, in, in the consumer community. So we don't actually have a treasury with income at the moment. Um, so once we start getting income, I'm hoping to figure out a system that um, that figures out how can you compensate people for their time. Um, Lee Jin also proposed something really interesting on Twitter yesterday, I think. Um, and it's DAO's implementing a universal basic income. And I thought that was a fascinating model too, because um, Supposing your DAO has enough income on a monthly basis and it's in one way or another recurring revenue, is it possible to actually pay every single DAO member a salary to make sure that they're also equally as invested in the DAO as you'd like your members to be? So I think there's so many ways to do it, but I'm curious about how we can fix what Web2 failed us with in terms of us investing our time into doing things that... Don't that that you know we might get joy out of, but ultimately companies are reaping monetary and financial incentives out of.
0: Johnny, my wife is pregnant. We have a boy on the way. Due in March, when my son is twenty nine years old, what world is he going to be living in? (laughs) Um, that's
1: a really interesting question. I mean, there I you see so many takes about. The internet and the metaverse right now. And it branches from everything that spans from, you know, we're in a technology renaissance all the way to um, this is late capitalism and the world is falling apart. <laughs> and um, my personal belief, and I really forgot who wrote this, but someone on Twitter said um, the metaverse isn't a specific place, but it's a moment in time where the virtual world is more valuable than the physical world. And I think I really agree with that definition because I think we've been undergoing that transition for a really, really long time. Your LinkedIn has been a proxy for your professional career for ages. Your Instagram is a proxy for your social experience and your memories. And I think that we're at this tipping point where, you know, like real estate is more expensive on the metaverse than a lot of places in the US right now. Um, So I think we're going to be reaching the point where we can reap tangible physical benefits from being in the metaverse. So I would foresee, you know, some kind of a structure where outside of, outside of sleeping, which presumably has to happen in in the physical world, unless um, someone is working on something that I'm not aware of, please reach out. Um, Your, your time in the real world will be spent between, the metaverse and the physical world and um potentially there's a chance that you'll be spending more time in the metaverse than the physical world is is my bet because there's going to be so much that you just can't do and um you can just be so much more efficient in the metaverse
0: it makes me think of the movie the matrix and the scene mm-hmm. where everybody's in the pods and they're you know what i'm talking about yes i do i actually just rewatched
1: and binged the matrix less than a month ago <laughs>
0: So I'm thinking about my son, 29 years from now, I see him in the metaverse, arguably more than in the real world. right now, I would love to attend conferences in the metaverse. I would love to be going to events, wearing my goggles. I'm my own avatar. You have an avatar. And because right now I'm not attending any conferences and events. And I feel like it'd be way more convenient to do it from my couch in the metaverse. I feel like that's a huge opportunity. Also on that point, like I'm not sure if you remember the
1: scene where um, Neo was was blinded, so he was. Uh, Trinity has to fly um, their spacecraft or aircraft or whatnot through the fields, but Neo was actually the one who can see the energy of the machine world, and he was guiding Trinity through the field. So even though Trinity has vision and Neo doesn't, Neo is the one who has this other sensory function that supersedes the human body and i'm just thinking about the implications for you know like equality and disability studies and how the metaverse can potentially be an equalizer for physical and uh, physical disabilities and you know things things that lead to prejudice like skin color like can the metaverse be a fix for for these things because when we see a physical person we we make an instinctive in, an instinctive judgment on the person but you know if you see my bored apes avatar you associate value more with my physical appearance or other qualities that are unimportant for how you know you make a judgment about me so I'm really curious about like the implications of the metaverse and how it can be a step forward or like you know a progressive frontier for um anything that's broken in terms of just us making initial judgments about people.
0: I like that. And there's no doubt that human flaws or human error will also end up in the metaverse and there will be discrimination in the web three world as well. It's almost inevitable because of human behavior. I'm not sure if you've seen, but apparently
1: some company was doing a diversity training with all white avatars in the metaverse and that made the news a while ago. So yes, absolutely. Right. (laughs)
0: Johnny, tell me about your background, your, your childhood. Where did you grow up? And how did you get so interested in, in, in technology? I was born and raised in Shanghai.
1: Um, so I spent the first 18 years of my life in China. And I think I had a interesting relationship with technology because the way China approaches tech is completely different to the US. And after moving to the US, I think it was fascinating to look at the difference in um, the two tech worlds. And I don't think I'm credible enough to speak on the Chinese tech industry, but um, from the way I see it, it's a lot of just top-down direction. The government would put effort into or um, emphasize one industry and inject funding into one industry. And um, that's where all of the capital and all of the talent would pile into because um, you know, the Chinese government is one of the world's largest LPs ever. Um, they have one of the largest fund of funds. Um, so... There's also a lot of corporate innovation because um, the internet uh, are in the hands of a handful of like three or four really, really large tech companies, and they're um, focused on everything. Like on my WeChat, I can pay for my electricity bill or my parking tickets, and I can call for a cab on my WeChat app um, back in China. So there's a lot of corporate-driven innovation as well, where companies have venture funds that are incubating new products that they can... Acquire and build into their central product. So it turns out that, like, you know, WeChat is its own little app store and its own, you know, like ecosystem, um, similar to the way that iPhone and, you know, the iOS ecosystem has its own set of apps that you would use. So I would say um, I've always been curious about, like, you know, I grew up during the time when China underwent one of the greatest economic and technological um, transitions, arguably in history. And I think um, I've just been paying attention to all of these apps and um, like platforms that popped up during this time and um, made the connection when I started university here that life is so different because of the way, because of our relationship with technology. And I think just decided to dive deeper and deeper into that.
0: When you compare the average 20 or 25 year old in China versus the average American. Tell me about the similarities and differences. I would say it's really hard to say because
1: um, one of the biggest mistakes is seeing China as a monolith and thinking that there's one identity for the entirety of China. And I think, you know, not going too deep into politics. I think that's one of the biggest issues with our foreign policy. Um, which is treating China as a monolith. Um, So I would say, you know, it really differs based off of where you are, which city you're in, which province you're in, um, what your socioeconomic background is. And if we look at a city like Shanghai, I would say it's not that much different from New York. And um, I don't know much about other cities, so I don't think I can talk too much about that.
0: (laughs) America, you always hear about America and China relations in the news. But I would say 99% of Americans wouldn't know to point China on a map. They don't know any Chinese. They could count the amount of Chinese people they know on one hand. There's such a lack of understanding of Chinese culture and society. Yet here we are at war with the other because of your innovation and, and leadership as a country. It's unfortunate. Yeah, I think there's a lot
1: to understand and a lot to learn from because from my perspective, I think there's a degree of healthy tension the same way that, you know, like I do politically lean pretty, you know, like closely to one party than another, but I think I'm not in the game of rooting for one party to win. I'm in the game of believing that there has to be this tug and pull between the two parties that makes democracy run. And in the same way, I think needs to be a tug and pull between different countries and political ideologies that makes us a better country and makes china a better country and i think we're past the point of healthy tension but if we're able to scale that back i think there's a lot that both countries can learn from each other because both took very very different paths to achieving a very to getting to a very similar place in economics so i think there's not one right answer on how to do things. And there are multiple paths to success. And I think um, lessons are to be learned in both models.
0: Yeah, I agree. When I was in college, I applied for the Schwartzman Scholars uh, Fellowship Program, if you've heard of it. And I I didn't Mm -hmm. get in, but I really wanted to live in China for a semester or a year because I thought Mm -hmm. that would really help. Is China a communist uh, party? Is China, people always talk about China, communism, And I always uh, question that. I know it's the communist Republic of China or the official title, I I don't know it, but please uh, shed light on that, educate me. Is China a communist country? Yeah, I mean, it's actually really hard to define
1: um what communism is because i would i would argue that com i mean communism hasn't been around for that long um it's it's a theory that uh, mostly emerged in like the 18 1900s um and then um you know like shit went down so it wasn't really like fully developed but if you if we look at the history of western civilization and um the canon of western political theory texts that goes all the way back to um ancient Greece so it's harder to argue what exactly is communism the way that you can clearly define what a republic is or what a democracy is um but i would say you know like china has contributed i mean china is China self-proclaims to be pioneering a new communist theory, so by definition, you can't really argue against that um, unless you sort of take like a um, like a traditional Marxist lens and use Marx's theory on China. But then again, Marx didn't have as much time to develop his theory as the history of Western political theorists, so it's not fair to sort of take one you know draft of what could be um, a completely different model of communism and using that as like the 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 quote-unquote purest form of communism. So I would say um, it's a tough question to answer because there isn't a clear definition and China is technically pioneering communism. So by definition, yes, they are a communist country and that's something we have to accept and shape new political theory around.
0: And what do you think the difference is between this new pioneering form of communism versus the Lenin form, the Marxist original?
1: Um. I used to be a history major, so I'm forgetting a lot of this because I haven't been exercising the history part of um, my brain, I guess, which is um, biologically inaccurate. Um, But I would say it depends on how you look at leadership and who you put the trust into. I think if you do believe in an authoritarian regime, which I think, you know, there's, there are people who do believe in an authoritarian regime and still want democracy. And I think a lot of Western texts, like the Prince by Machiavelli, for example, also outlines one strong authoritarian leader while still achieving a somewhat democratic um, like people's will sort of like leadership. So I think, um, you know, in terms of like authoritarianism versus a country driven by people, The biggest difference for me is how much do you trust in the people and how much do you trust in the government? And then that goes back to human nature. Like, can you trust people to make the best decisions for themselves or do you have to trust a government to do it? Um, I don't know the right answer. I don't don't think anyone knows the right answer. Um, But I do think that with the right authoritarian regime, you can be a lot more efficient because democracy believes in going at the pace of the average person versus... If we do you know strike gold with an authoritarian regime which sounds really really weird then you're going at the pace of the top one percent but then you also have this balance between you know is the interest of the country aligned with the interest of the people then if so then going at the fastest pace possible would be the best way to go but there's also the possibility where when a country is thriving its people aren't so i think there's um i'm not well equipped to speak on this subject and you know would love to have recommended readings on on anything relating
0: to this. You spoke very well about it. It, It's going (laughs) on today in America, all over the world, this ideological debate. Tell me about Tibet. I was in Salem, Massachusetts last summer and I walked Mm -hmm. into a store and there was a Tibetan woman who was selling products and she was promoting the independence and freedom of Tibet versus China. And I Mm -hmm. wish I knew about it. So can you please, educate me on what you know about the subject and what we need to know as as Americans or people in today's world.
1: Candidly, I don't actually know that much about the subject because I've been pretty um, just disconnected from politics. And I think that, you know, it's possible to live in the world where you follow politics, but you're not like deeply involved in everything that's happening. I think that there's a large degree of propaganda on both sides that are driving their own narratives that aren't in the best interest of the people, but for a larger political agenda. So I do think that it's tough to find the right sources to tell you um, the right information for the people to make a choice for themselves based off of your personal values. But, you know, what I can tell you is I was in Tibet um, two years ago, um, freshman year, summer. A lot of my friends were doing internships, but I thought, fuck it. I'm basically a glorified college student. And uh, sorry, I'm basically a glorified high schooler. Um, Just did my first year in college. There's nothing I can contribute to companies. So um, I went to Bhutan and Tibet for a uh, month long backpacking trip instead. And the people there are... um, really, really wonderful and super um, welcoming and hospitable. And it also leads me to think about the fact that you have all these things happening between countries, but really the people like each other and they enjoy each other's company. And it's the same with Taiwan. Um, Every time we go to Taiwan, um, the people welcome tourists really, really warmly. So I'm just thinking about the fact that a lot of people let politics drive, you know, their interest or their, um their opinions of people, but really a lot of people are more disconnected from politics than you'd like them than you'd think that they are. So um, it's a place that I would personally recommend people have to have to have to go visit by themselves because you know, it's not just a pillar of um, of culture. Um, it's also a pillar of religion. So you know, you do really feel the sacredness of um, the land of Tibet when you go traveling and, um, it's, it's definitely a really unique travel destination because you spend most of your time on the road. Um, you know, you could be driving to one mountain and that could be like a three days trip and you, you know, get off for, um, 15 minutes and you run out of oxygen. So you go back into the car. So, you know, it's, it's a different type of trip, but because you get so much time alone with yourself, it's a really introspective journey at the same time too.
0: Johnny, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Two more questions. If someone wants mm-hmm. to shout out, how should they contact you?
1: Um, I think hello at johnnyu.com um, is my personal email. It's also in my uh, Twitter bio. So my Twitter is um, Johnny R-Y-U, J-O-H-N-N-I-E-R-Y-U. Um, so I like to put myself out there. I'm pretty accessible, I think. So if you just like DM me, shoot me an email,
0: I'll definitely get back to you. All right, last question, Johnny. It's my signature question I ask everybody. If there was okay. one thing you could do to improve this world, what would you do and why?
1: Um, I would, I, you know, I, I'd love to fix academia. Um, I think it's one of the most respectable things about, I think, the Western way of life. It's how much respect academia gets. But at the same time, I think there's so much bureaucracy and process in academia that it really slows things down for everyone, and especially new academics entering the field. Um, and it's really an inefficient system if you think about how everything is designed. And I, I sometimes wonder if academia is well equipped to handle um, modern inter- interdisciplinary studies because you're bucketed into these fields of studies that now are interconnected and are creating new fields of studies. And then at the same time, you're you know like writing papers that are being printed out and mailed to people. And I'm just thinking about how the process of me doing a film analysis is so just broken because I have to screenshot scenes and write down the time code and insert that into a paper. And then my entire Word document shifts by like three pages because a new image has been added. So I really think that, you know, we should think about the role academia has played in our society, how we want to keep on reaping values from our current relationship with academia, but also get more people involved and, you know, have academics be involved in things like business operations too, which is happening now more and more than, um, like more so than before for sure. Um, But I just think that every morning now I wake up and I try to read an academic paper on something, whether it's, you know, like web three or film or something that it's completely unrelated to what i'm like working on or studying and i just think it adds so much substance to um the way i think about things and helps me like draw connections between things that i never thought were possible before like you know like art history and um investing for example um which i think is really really relevant for web3 right now so yeah i'd love to see you know what ideas people have for creating a much more open version of academia that's um, well-equipped to handle um, the challenges of the real world.
0: Incredible. So for those listening, a friend of mine, Brian Fulmer, who's the founder of First Look, introduced Johnny. And this was our intro call. We were just going to chit-chat for a few minutes. And I said, hey, Johnny, let's record a podcast instead. So if you're interested in starting a podcast, look how easy it can be. Thank you so much, Johnny. It's been an incredible conversation. I think you have a really bright future. I think you're extremely intelligent. I can't believe you are still in college. I'm excited to see where you are in 10, 20, 30 years.
1: Thank you so much for your kind words. I really enjoyed this conversation too. I think it's really rare that you get to dive this deep um, into everything with someone you just met. So, um, you know, there's no other way I would have liked this intro call to go. Same,
0: I'm excited to stay in touch with you, Johnny. you enjoyed today's episode with johnny you i learned so much from what he had to say i hope you enjoyed today's episode and stay posted for the next one starting from now we're only going to be releasing episodes every friday if i can do more great but every friday i'm holding myself accountable and i'm going to be posting a new episode every friday